I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 382. I am coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. More about that in just a second. But first, thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the show's logo. He's at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel. And Rob Grundle from London designed the Jazz or Bust logo that I'm using on a lot of my pages now, and thanks so much, Rob, for doing that. As I mentioned, I'm in Nashville. Since the last time we spoke, I've been in uh, Richmond and Charlottesville. I think I was in Richmond the last time I recorded a show intro, and then spent a couple of days in Charlottesville and managed to pack in two interviews and three sets of music into that uh, day and a half, which was very cool. Sat down with John Durth and Robert Jospe, and also saw uh, John Durth play a couple of times and saw some very talented younger players, uh, like high school age players, and really had a blast in Charlottesville. Also, uh, big thanks to my friend John Mason, a professor at the university, for setting that up. And of course, got there right as this major national scandal erupted at the university. So uh, that was exciting, too. And I'd like to thank the folks who uh, who made that scandal possible for making my stay more exciting. And then I spent 14-plus uh, hours on a bus as you're listening to this yesterday, or two days ago as you're listening to this, actually, to get to Nashville and uh, got on the bus with nowhere to stay and uh, got off and had uh, the home of the wonderful Paul Horton, uh, pianist and keyboardist here in Nashville, and uh, someone I we just know each other from Twitter, and he was kind enough uh, when I said I needed a place to stay to offer me one uh, just for tonight. And then I'm staying uh, with a saxophonist named Evan Cobb for the next few days. And also doing a poetry reading today in Nashville. But by the time you're hearing this, all of that has just happened. After Nashville, and I'll be doing interviews here too, of course, then it's off to Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, hanging out with Donald Brown and doing a poetry reading there on Friday, this coming Friday at 7 p.m. And all that information is at jasoncrane.org. And then I head off briefly to North Carolina and Atlanta and Alabama and New Orleans, and uh, then we'll figure out what happens next from there. You can, of course, follow all the shows at thejazzsession.com, but for daily updates from the road, each night before I go to bed, <laughs> and these days it's more accurately said, at 2 o'clock in the morning, each morning before I go to bed, I write about what happened uh, up to that point on that day. And there are usually photos. There are some recordings. I've been doing these um, jazz or bust bonus tracks, which are interviews with non-jazz folks who are just too interesting not to talk to. And there are two online so far at jasoncrane.org. One is with Scott Schmied, a guy who lives in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, in a wigwam and builds washtub bases. And the other is with Sandra Beasley, a poet and memoirist in Washington, D.C., and those are both online now at jasoncrane.org, as are all those tour diaries, as are recordings of the poetry readings that I'm doing as I travel along, and lots of, lots of photos and all kinds of cool stuff. 
So please do visit jasoncrane.org to keep in touch with the tour. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. And of course, at thejazzsession.com slash tour, you can contribute to the tour in a number of ways. You can make a one-time contribution and uh, get the thank you gifts that go along with that. You can become a recurring member, which is, uh, that's primarily the income that I'm using to survive while I'm on the road. Uh, and the tour income is kind of going toward the transportation part of it. You can also donate a book to my Kindle, which many people have done. Uh, it didn't occur to me till about a week into the thing, but uh, it's proven to be a really fantastic way for me to have stuff to read on all these bus trips uh, and not have to spend some of the transportation money to make that happen. So that's another uh, you know, fairly inexpensive way to contribute to the tour, and all of that is at thejazzsession.com slash tour. I mentioned Scott Schmid, the guy who lives in the wigwam in Shepherdstown. Well, the reason I actually went to Shepherdstown was to interview the drummer Jeff Cosgrove, who has a new record out celebrating the music of Paul Motion with a very interesting instrumentation and I think uh, a very successful look at this music. So we're going to hear my chat with Jeff Cosgrove after we hear some music from his band. My guest is Jeff Cosgrove. We are in uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, part of the Jazz or Bus Tour. I'm so, so glad you're here. Thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks, Jason. I uh, really appreciate you having me on the show, and welcome to wild and wonderful West Virginia. I got to say, man, this town is one of the nicest places I have ever been. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. It's a really, you. really great town. Thank you. It, you know, it's, I've been very fortunate to call Shepherdstown my home for the last 15 years, and it's really, it's an amazing place. You know, it's, I've it, feel like the joke of you know everybody knows your name but you know we walk around town and it's like everybody knows everybody and it's it's very comforting in that sense now part of what i'm uh should mention right off the top that you've got a, a new record that's been getting a lot of critical acclaim called for the love of sarah it's music of paul motion and before we delve into the record though I, part of what i'm doing on this tour as you know uh is trying to find people who are making viable lives in this music who have chosen not to live in Brooklyn or, you know, not to live in, is there someplace else? I guess maybe San Francisco. I don't know where else you might live, New Orleans. And so you live in a small town. I mean, it's not very far from, it's an hour from some major population centers, Baltimore and D.C., but you have managed to make a really solid life in music with a lot of connections with people, names everyone would know, still based here in Shepherdstown, and I'm interested in in how you've done that. Well, it it certainly is a very unique situation and living in Shepherdstown it's funny whenever I tell anybody where I live and I say oh I live in West Virginia the common response is oh I've been to Western Virginia but you know just like the confusion of even where it is that I live it, it makes it 
very strange for people to think that I actually do a lot of stuff with music and a lot of very contemporary jazz artists and, you know, not Kenny G in the contemporary sense, you know, but um, it's, I, I think it all really started with two things. One is that I uh, was very connected to the music when I was leaving college and was doing a lot of playing and, uh, but didn't want to be on the road. And um, my wife and I, my now wife, then girlfriend were, you know, really looking to kind of form a life and be able to afford a, to live. And she and I both kind of agreed that New York wasn't really a place for us. And, and at the same time, as I was playing, I didn't necessarily have the confidence to be in a scene like that. And so, but what I did have was the desire to kind of be connected to the music. And so as things would kind of progress, the, uh, I was graduating from college and I was at an IAJE and it was one of those late night shows. Actually, I remember it was the Jerry Allen trio. It was Jerry and Buster Williams and Billy Hart. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen Billy. So I, I you know, was kind of really excited. And then as the show was ending, I jumped over the seat to get to some friends who were walking out. And there was an older gentleman in the back there who was saying, oh, yeah, when I was your age, I could jump three of those chairs. And, and, and I just started to laugh. And we started this conversation and finally he said, oh, there's this other old guy coming and he's going to sit down with me. Well, it turns out that that was the events manager at Jazz Times and then the, his older friend was Ira Sabin. And so we started talking and I said, you know, Ira Sabin, Ira Sabin if, for those who don't know, was the founder of Jazz Times and just a general jazz industry uh, character would be the best, <laughs> best word <laughs> for Ira. Than life kind of, uh, exactly. Kind of and so, and you know, if anybody wants to talk off the air of Ira Saban stories, I've got more than more than a handful. Um, and uh, you know, I I just kind of ended up talking to them, and and they said, you know, you should come by the booth. We're always looking for people um, who might be interested in working with us. And so I went by the booth the next day, and I talked to them about an internship and got some business cards. And I never really thought it would go anywhere. And I started making this trek from Shepherdstown to Silver Spring, Maryland, where they were located for this internship for the last semester I was in college and was there three or four weeks and they offered me a job to start that summer. And man, I just made the most of it. I, I, I was, it was like a kid in a candy store, you know, first week I was there, Max Roach called my extension by accident, you know, and I got, I became friends with Gene Perla and, you know, it just started talking to guys and, and. I had this amazing job of calling, you know, artists to kind of solicit them to buy ads for the education guide. And so whenever I would call these guys, I would start to, oh, my gosh, you know, Andrew Cyril, you know, you, you're working on this record. And, you know, oh, my, and, you know, the guys, I think, really understood that I was devoted to what it is that they did and what it is they were doing and, you know, that I really loved the music. And so... All of those guys really just wanted to talk about the music. And, man, it was so exciting. And so I just kind of started to form that kind of creation of connecting with guys, you know, and just – and they were all very cool about it. You know, we'd start talking on the phone I'd, when I'd have to go to New York for work, for a trade show or for some industry event. I would always make time to hang out with people and really kind of – pick their brains about what does it mean to play free? You know, what does it mean to play 
really inside, you know, and, and that I think was really kind of the catalyst of me connecting to the music beyond what's in the very small radius of Shepherdstown. And wh- while there are some amazing players in the area, you know, even DC, Baltimore, you know, it, I think really the focus for me was knowing that I always wanted to strive to be better and be in a situation where I could be playing with musicians who were top of the world, you know, in music that I really appreciated, you know, and it, it didn't really have to be, I mean, I don't think now in this day and age you have to live anywhere as you're proving right now, you know, you're not living anywhere. And you're <laughs> I should mention, uh, this has probably become obvious by this point already, we're outdoors. Uh, we're in a, a very gorgeous park, the name of which you've already told me twice and I've forgotten. I know it has Morgan in it. Yeah, Morgan Grove Park. Morgan Grove in Park in Shepherdstown. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And we just came, uh, just a bit of touristiness. We, uh, we probably should say to people, so Shepherdstown is right on the Potomac. If you it is. cross the river, you're in Maryland. Exactly. Right? And uh, for folks who, like me, had no idea where Shepherdstown was until a few days ago. Uh, if you've heard of the Battle of Antietam from the Civil War or Harper's Ferry, another famous Civil War site, those are very close by. Right? Or so we're in Charlestown where they now have uh, gaming tables, uh, but John Brown was hung there for treason uh, <laughs> right there at the courthouse. Um, so fun family events. Fun family facts. Yeah, yes, you know? That's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, so just if you may hear sounds that are out of our control, and that's why. So uh, to come back to this idea of uh, of kind of connecting to the larger musical world, that really expresses itself um, on your new record in a lot of ways because it's – first of all, it's the music of Paul Motion with whom you established a connection. And then the players on it are really top-notch, you know, world-class players. So maybe let's start with who's on the record, and then we'll talk about sure. how you got to know Paul Motion. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> All of those are very interesting, interesting things, and it kind of goes back to my salesman days, you know. And I'm at Jazz Times, but I've never had this issue of just not calling people 
and thinking, yeah, you know, if they don't want to talk to me, they'll just hang up the phone. But um, so the record on the record is Jamie Macefield, uh, the mandolin player, uh, most famous for Jazz Mandolin Project, and um, Matt Maneri on viola, who Cecil Taylor and William Parker and his numerous projects, and uh, and uh, and John Abair, who uh, I think needs no introduction to anybody, is Mr. Hard Enough to Pin Down to Anything. He, um, I guess Mary Halverson's probably the biggest thing he's doing right now, um, or Yuri Kane, or... I think uh, he's on like one out of every three records that comes I, out now. I think right? so. Because I, some contractual obligation, <laughs> John A. Bear's on one of every three records. Exactly. That comes out. It's, you know, and when we did the record at Systems 2 in Brooklyn, it was, I mean, John! It's like, <laughs> they know his car, they'll move it for him to the parking meet. I mean, it was really great. Um, you know, and, and the guys at System 2, Nancy and Max and Joe, and, and they were they were so great. But, you know, they uh, John was really kind of, a, in some part, a large piece of how to get things going. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all started, I've been kind of fiddling around with the idea of Paul Motion's music for years. And um, finally, uh, I had kind of gotten everything together, and I was... I was in a stall moment. I'd been working on it for about four years, three and a half years. And um, I just came home from a gig one night and I said, you know what? I'm going to call David Grisman to get on this record. And Sarah, my wife, just kind of chuckled. And within a day, I had David's contact information and I emailed him and he emailed me back and said, you know, just in case we should tell folks who David Grisman Oh, David Grisman, the mandolin player who played with Peter Rowan, but also played with Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead and kind of a you know, unique musical personality yeah. in, in the jazz world as well as in the bluegrass traditional kind of acoustic music scene and uh, who I loved playing very much. And for you know, the timing issues, it just wasn't going to work out with David. And I thought, you know who would really be great is Jamie. I really was – and I, I – have had all of the jazz mandolin project records and I really liked his compositional style. And a friend of mine who is the managing director at the Burlington discover jazz festival, I knew presented him and knew him. And now, so, what, now let me break in here to say, uh, when most people think I'm going to do a record of the music of Paul Motion, the first thing they don't try to do is cast the mandolin player in the band, right? So I think <laughs> or even, of any band, really. <laughs> yes. So I think even moving a step back to say, when did you first conceive that this wasn't going to be like saxophone, piano, bass, and drums, or or whatever it might be? When did you first start hearing this different instrumentation in your head? Well, and this again goes back to my time at Jazz Times, and and I would talk to the publisher a lot about guys you know i was trying to do a lot of research on stuff and 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 i started to really listen to paul's music and i came into his office one day and i said you know I, do you have any of paul motions records i really because the only one i had at the time was conception vessel which is that first record he ever did as a leader and I, I loved the compositions on it and then i came into my office the next day and there was a stack of like 40 records that he was on and uh, most of which he was a leader of and i just i listened to it and there's such a folkloric kind of warmth to all of his records and all of the sounds of his melodies that, for whatever reason, I just felt like the mandolin would be that perfect high enough tone to be kind of considered guitar-like, but at the same time unique, so it didn't sound like I was just doing a record of Paul's music 
to imitate Paul mm. because why would you listen to me be Paul Motion when you could listen to Paul Motion, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and so I don't know. I just I felt like the mandolin was kind of that perfect bridge of jazz and the folkloric kind of quality. And there's really only a few guys who are doing that mandolin jazz thing, you know? And, and so sure. <laughs> I don't know why it just kind of stuck there that I, I'd always, I always wanted to do kind of a bluegrass inspired jazz thing. And Paul's music has kind of this warmth and give that it'll take just about anything, mm. you know, as, as Paul was willing to demonstrate on his 30 some records as a leader, you right. know, he's, coming up, you know, coming up with all kinds of stuff. And so I kind of always identify with that spirit of it. And, and uh, it was, it actually, I feel like, worked out pretty well. So now back to roping in Jamie. Uh, did you was that someone you said you you, know, you knew a presenter who knew? I knew him, a presenter right? who knew Jamie and Jamie and we go up to Burlington every year and we would see some of the festival and I I emailed my friend and said you know is there any way you could get in touch with me get me in touch with Jamie Maysfield because he was going to be on the festival that year and uh, he gave me his email address and I I emailed Jamie and a couple of days later he wrote back and said huh it's nice to meet you. You know, this project sounds kind of interesting. It's really funny is that John Fishman, the drummer from fish who was their close friends had just been to the village Vanguard and seen Paul at, had never seen him before. And, and he was kind of recounting the whole Paul motion live at the village Vanguard experience to Jamie. And, and this was kind of a day or so before my email came to Jamie and he was, he was, knew of Paul and, and knew some records that he was on and knew some things that, you know, Frizzell had played with uh, Paul on. And, but he didn't really know Paul's music. And we met that night and we talked and he was like, yeah, I'm kind of interested, but I don't know if this is really the right thing. Are you sure you got the right guy? And uh, he was like, well, just let me know who else is going to be on the record and we'll, we'll talk more about it. And so as, as things kind of started to formulate, uh, I was going to use another a violin player who we thought we had everything kind of worked out, but then a tour came up and that took kind of precedence over this one-off record of, you know, maybe that it would be okay, you know? Right. <laughs> um, and, but in that time I'd gotten Johnny Bear on the record through Noah Preminger and, and Matt Wilson um, and Frank Kimbrough had given me John's number and said, hey, you should call a bear. I know he's, he'd be a good guy to talk to you about this. And, and, so Jamie was kind of coming on board with the idea that Johnny Bear was on, and but then we had no fiddle player, and I was like, "Oh crap!" You know, and and so I called everybody and said, "Oh, the gig's off. You know, we don't have a fiddle player." And a Bear said, "Oh, I've got the guy. It's Matt Maneri." And I, and I knew Matt's playing from Paul's records and his duo with Cecil Taylor, and but I never, I don't know why, I just hadn't thought to call him. You know, he's not somebody that I really was kind of all that aware was still in New York, you know, for whatever reason, I thought he had gone off to Europe or whatever. Sure. Um, and so I called Matt and then he said, yeah, it sounds like a cool idea. And he said, what are the dates? And I gave him the dates and, and that was about it. And I mean, it was weird. I, I, I was going to, and 
we met one night. It was in November of 2010 before the session in February of 2011. And Matt was playing with Paul at the Vanguard, and I went down. And I was supposed to bring him all this music. And I was in New York, and that afternoon my bag had gotten stolen with the music for Matt and my laptop and my train ticket and my car keys. And so that was kind of my introduction to Matt Maneri as I went in. I was just like, oh, hey, you got some music for me. And I said, no, actually, my bag got stolen. And he was like, oh, no, welcome to New York. Oh, man. Wow. So that was kind of, uh, kind of the scene of how the guys all came together. But we had never really played as a unit or re- there was no time for rehearsal and very typical Paul motion fashion. You know, we weren't going to rehearse. We were just going to kind of go in. I didn't even see John a bear in person until we walked into the studio. And, you know, we didn't really talk about anything. Jamie and I talked probably once or twice kind of about where I was coming from and where I thought his sound would fit into the motion thing. And, you know, it was, I really think that everybody just kind of brought their a game. You know, and there was there wasn't a whole lot of arrangements or anything. We just kind of went in and did it, and everybody had ideas of maybe this will work, and you know, we arranged everything on, before takes. And. Part of this is because he just passed away, but Paul Motion's name has been coming up a lot on this show recently. I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been the guitarist Joel Harrison, but if it wasn't, we'll just attribute it to him anyway, um, who was talking about what a wealth of amazing compositions there are in Paul Motion's book and how people just don't play his music enough. And I wonder, what is it... You mentioned kind of the open, like kind of folk-like quality to his music, but... Are there things you can kind of pinpoint that are hallmarks of, of motion compositions? And then going beyond that, how did you, uh, to whatever degree you did, kind of adapt that music for this project? Well, it's it's funny because really the thing that to me is the most hallmark of Paul's music is sparseness. You know, it's just kind of this – there's a very, emotion connect, very emotional piece connected to each note, but it's not – you know, these crazy 64, you know, but if you, if you listen to these very deceptively simple, very, you know, very thoughtful melodies, um, man, it just draws you in. It's like you get these emotions from Paul. And while some of them can be like very frantic and very kind of disjunct, like mumbo jumbo or, you know, like the storyteller where it's, very kind of in your face and and but it's not a whole lot of notes when you look at it on the paper and it's but it's still every note has a meaning and every note has kind of this connection to whether it be some emotion that Paul had or you know like when I listened to the story of Miriam or something it maybe that was somebody that Paul was you know involved with at that time or it's just such a very like heartfelt like melody but looking at the stuff on paper, it's very odd, you know, and Paul has this very beautiful handwriting, 
But when I first got the notes from Paul, the sheets from Paul, there's these weird like phrase lines over them, over each like section. And I, I, I called Paul and I asked him, and I said, Paul, you know, what, what does this mean? And he was like, I'll tell you what I tell everybody else who asked me that question. I don't care how you play it. You just play it as a phrase. And, you know, it was very Paul. And, but once he said that, it was just kind of like, that's it. That's the whole connection of Paul's music is that it's phrases. And it's just kind of, while some of it is conversational and very loose in terms of the meter, it's very emotionally driven and very space is carefully chosen and everything is there deliberately but in a very heartfelt deliberate way and not kind of it's not kind of this i'm going to put this here because it's you know notationally correct mm-hmm. you know that you know you can't have you know the i'm horrible at music theory which is probably why i don't have a <laughs> performance degree but um you know you know it's not like these perfect fourths don't move in the right inter- you know right but it's very Paul, you know, and you could just almost see him like plugging away at his piano and just kind of, oh, well, that works, you know. So, uh, I'm glad you mentioned talking to him about this music because it reminds me of a question I asked you earlier and didn't actually follow up on to get an answer, uh, which is that you, in fact, had conversations with Paul um, about making this record, about interpreting his music. And can you talk about, first of all, was this another example of you just saying, I'm not afraid to cold call somebody and doing it? Or did you have an, an entree? How did that work? Well, actually, um, I, it was a little bit of both in a weird sense because, um, and now that Paul has passed away, I feel like I can tell the story out in the open. Um, and I'd never told it to Paul. So Frank Kimbrough had just made the record with Masu. Uh, Kamaguchi and Paul Motion, which is the play record and on which is on Palmetto and and man, I was really excited. We had talked and and I kind of talked to him about what it was like playing with Paul and had he played with Paul before and had Masa played with Paul before? No, no, Masa and Paul had never even met. And so and so I, I um because we had the uh, pre-release at, at Jazz Times and I was listening. Oh man, I was blown away. And I was like, oh, so what was that experience like for you? And, and he was telling me how great Paul was and how it was like pulling teeth to get him to leave the city to do this record. And, um, and so I said, you know, I've always wanted to make a record of Paul's music, but I wanted to do it in like kind of a bluegrass thing. And, and since Frank is from North Carolina, I kind of knew that he would, he would catch on with that hillbilly sense of his. And um, we... He was like, oh, you should call him. And I was like, call Paul Motion? You know, and Paul's got this reputation of being a very hardcore New Yorker, you know, like very tough. And, um, and so he gave me his phone number and he said, I'll give you three things. One, don't tell him that I gave you the phone number. Two, you know, he probably won't answer the phone. And three, he probably won't call you back. And so he was like, but just, you know, go for it. He also said some other things I probably shouldn't say on the air. But, um, uh, so I, it took me like about a year to get the courage up to call Paul. But I called him, and, and I left the message on his answering machine and said, Hi, Paul. My name's Jeff Cosgrove. And I gave him the whole spiel on what I wanted to do in about a 30-second answering machine message. And um, So the elevator pitch the of elevator the, pitch of the, of the I don't even know if this is the right phone number because it just said, please leave a message. You know, it wasn't even like you've reached Paul motion. It was, and, uh, and so after, after that call, a couple of days later, 
my wife and I were putting together, putting our, she was putting our younger son to bed and I was putting our older son to bed and, and the phone rang and my wife came running to me and she said, Paul Motion is calling our house, you know, and, and I, I, I was shocked that she was so surprised, you know, so excited and so, but, you know, we played phone tag for a couple of days and then finally connected and, and he was great. He was so kind. He was very humble about his compositions. Oh, are you sure? You, you know, this sounds like a really interesting project, but are you sure, you know, I'm a composer for that? There's so many other, you know, look at Keith's music, Keith Jarrett's music, or, and I was like, no, I really feel like this is it. You know, you, this would be really perfect. So he sent me a few charts, you know, probably about 15, and I started playing some stuff with some of the local bluegrass guys. And from the moment I heard it with the bluegrass guys, while they had trouble with the flexibility that Paul's music requires, the sound was exactly what I wanted. You know, much like the chainsaw going right now. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. I started playing the music with the bluegrass guys and, and I knew that it was really a great fit. And so, but I needed more. So I called Paul like six or eight months later and he, we talked for a while and it was, we had a really great conversation and especially that, uh, second time he said, well, what tunes do you need? And I said, uh, let me, j- I've got a list. Hang on. Give me a second. He goes, okay, cool. Give me a second too. So got there and I'm sitting there on the phone waiting for him to come back, waiting for him to come back. And I can hear his TV, and then suddenly I hear this, man, what the hell? And it's Paul. And I said, Paul? And he said, Jeff? And I said, I've been waiting for you this whole time. And he said, I've been waiting for you the whole time. We've been on hold with each other for like 15 minutes, just standing there, holding the phone together on complete silence. He laughed so hard. It was, it was just amazing. It was an amazing thing. You know, it was, he was so funny, and, and, but just cracked up. And then, and then finally... At the end of that call, he said, what the hell is the name of this band anyway? And I said, well, I hope you're not going to be upset, but it's called Motion Sickness. And he just laughed. He dropped the phone. He laughed so hard. And, and I, I, he picked up the phone. He goes, I'm sorry. That's like the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. And, and he, was, he was really totally into it. You know, he was really – and uh, every, he would always call me back. And it was, it was amazing to see one of my heroes – 
be so humble and open and accepting of the fact that he was not only idolized but didn't didn't put his own music on such a high pedestal like oh no you know it's too good for you you know he was will- he's was willing to share it with everybody and i think that now that he's gone i hope that more people will share his music because it really is so unique but beautiful in its uniqueness now i want to talk uh business for a couple of minutes here because Uh-oh. one thing <laughs> <laughs> one thing about uh your record is that it's gotten a lot of press and it's gotten a lot of press without you having well without you living in new york city and it's gotten a lot of press with you living in shepherdstown and you were mentioning to me in the car on the way here that some people have said to you like how are you getting international write-ups on your record and so maybe for the benefit of other folks who are listening to this it would be great to have you tell us how it is that you've succeeded in in doing what many people seem to be totally unable to do well it's um it's pretty unique it's stuffing them in envelopes and um sending them out i mean honestly i uh, you're crazy jeff cosgrove i I know what can i say (laughs) but um well really what i did was is and i had a couple of conversations with people with press you know pr people and and the costs that they wanted i had sunk so much money you know and a lot of money for me but well worth every cent but i just couldn't afford to do another you know two or three thousand dollar push and so i just started to search around on the internet at all the places that had reviewed paul's music or had reviewed johnny bear or reviewed matt minary and i wrote a press release because the thing i would hate when i would see a press release from people is that it's four pages double-sided you know and but it was a one-page press release very simply talking about the project and very simply stating who the people were and a couple of sentences on each thing and I started to send it out, and then I thought, well, he's really po- you know, his music is really popular in Europe and Japan. So I hired a native Japanese speaker and paid him a little bit of money and had him translate a letter and the press release into Japanese. And I sent it to the major publishers over there, and they got really excited because it was the first time that somebody had really taken the time to give them something that was written for them. You know, and written in their language and kind of the respect that, you know, I value what they do. I hope that they would value what I do because I feel like it fits. And but, it worked. I mean, as people can even see on your site, there's there are pieces in Japanese <laughs> about the record. Exactly. So. <laughs> Japanese. And I, I, I was thinking I've gotten Japanese, Italian, um, French, um, Dutch. I mean, I've got it's, – it's pretty amazing. I mean, this is the first – First record I've ever been on, you know, and I mean, it's not like I've got this long history as a sideman. I've got no history, you know, and I'm not from New York. I mean, it's not like I've played with a lot of people. And, you know, it was just writing these press releases in a language for the reviewers and sending it to them and and making contact with everybody. And some people were interested in the record and, you know, and that's totally understandable because they get a lot of these pitches all the time. But just the fact that I did a lot of just trying to individually reach out to people and try and get them to listen to the record. And even if they didn't like it, just please just listen to it, you know. And, and that's what it really boiled down to. I spent a lot of time stuffing envelopes and, you know, making sure it was going out. And, and it was – the press response has been overwhelming. I, I can't even – I mean, to me, it's, it's just humongous. I, I can't believe that this is my first record and – 
and I'm getting all this press and you know there's a lot of value in this record from that perspective you know This show really doesn't have a particular geographic base, but certainly there are a lot of people who listen who are in New York, and uh, they have a couple chances to see you uh, coming up this summer. Will you talk about those? Sure. I'll be um, playing in an improvised trio in Midtown at Clavier House with uh, Frank Kimbrough and playing with uh, Martin Wind on bass. And I'm really excited. This is my first time playing with either of those gentlemen, although I've known them both for quite a while. I'm, it's just really exciting, you know, really, really exciting. And, and uh, I haven't played in New York in, in a long time um, since when I was playing in blues bands, shuffling around as a younger, younger person. And, uh, and then on that, which is Wednesday, July 11th, we're playing at 7 o'clock. And then on that Friday, we're playing at I-Beam, which is Friday the 13th for all those suspicious, we'll have black cats walking around and, you know. Exactly, playing under a ladder, opening umbrellas and doors. Um, and that'll be with uh, a quintet. That'll be with Matt Maneri on viola and Frank Kimbrough on piano, Noah Preminger on saxophone, and Joe Martin on bass, which I'm really excited about. And because um, with, with the exception of Matt, I haven't really played with any of those gentlemen either. Sure. So. Now, certainly, uh, I would imagine some folks are going to listen to this episode in particular who actually live somewhere near where you live. So there are chances to see you in this area, too. Do you want to yes, mention some of those? Yes, sure. I, um, I, well, I'll be playing on Saturday, June 9th, which is... Uh, in the past, In the sadly. past, yes. essentially. <laughs> um, we, I'll be playing at uh, part of the D.C. Jazz Festival in D.C. And, and, uh, but in Brunswick, Maryland, the hotbed of jazz of the you know, region, I, uh, I've... There's an amazing uh, venue called Beans in the Belfry, which is a converted old church. And they, the owners are amazing supporters of the arts and music. And, and while I play there pretty regularly with a quartet and sometimes trios, sometimes duos, and sometimes solo drum performances, whatever they'll let me do and whoever I can find. Um, and I play there quite frequently. The next time I'll be there is Wednesday, June 27th with a quartet that I've been working with, uh, saxophonist uh, Curtis Adams. 
pianist Rodrigo Pinchera and bassist Mark Leischer, all of which are kind of um, area folks who are wonderful musicians that really, I feel so connected to them musically very quickly. It was, it, and I tell my wife a lot, who has been an amazing supporter of me playing music, um, you know, it's really the first time since my record that I'm playing with guys that I feel like get what I do and I get what they do and there's no real need for discussion. We just kind of go and we play and we're always just trying to put music on the highest level we can. And what's the repertoire like for that? Um, it's, it's various, actually. We're, you know, we're playing um, some of Motion's tunes. We're playing some of Curtis's originals. Uh, and kind of the goal of that band is to bring in new tunes every time. And, and while All the Things You Are is a beautiful tune played by many wonderful people, if I have to play that song again... In the immediate future, I think I might go crazy. <laughs> but so it's it's kind of finding new pieces. Um, you know, we played "Remember" the old Irving Berlin tune, very early, which is you know the Bill Evans mm-hmm. standard, and and really it's just finding newer newer old music stuff that's not really performed regularly that sure. really is challenging to kind of find things that will excite you and and how much great music there already is out there that isn't you know one of those top 50 tunes that they teach you in jazz school to like know in every key yeah been talking about ways that you can kind of make a musical life when you're a little bit off the beaten path and one way a creative way that you came up with to do it was to find a way to fund bringing people here where you are now will you talk about that sure actually it was an amazing experience to be able to find money essentially and i got the idea from a, a drummer friend of mine who's finnish um who would get all these nea grants to study with people and this was in the late 80s early 90s and uh, he said, I-, I bet you if you just looked, you'd qualify for something. And sure enough, I did a quick little search, and, and the West Virginia uh, Arts and Culture Board was offering these grants to study as a professional development grant is what they called it. And the thing that I discovered after talking to them was 
filling out the paperwork in the exact format that they requested was really like three quarters of the way of getting your money. <laughs> and uh, I, I, and I, I looked at it and I thought, man, I would really love this to be able to study more with Andrew Cyril and study more with Matt Wilson. But with two young kids, it was very difficult along with their very intense travel schedules to, for me to be up in New York and spend any kind of meaningful time with them other than these one-off lessons we'd had here and there, um, you know, in New York or wherever we'd meet up and, you know, I, I beg them to show me some more stuff. And, and of course they always indulge me, but, um, so I wrote this grant and lo and behold, I actually got the money. You know, I had to, I had to fill out all the paperwork and I had to go to the hotel where they'd stay and get them to sign something saying that this is what it would actually cost. And it was, uh, it was a very eye-opening experience to see, that people would give you money if you just wrote it up the right way. And, and it, was a, it was great to be able to bring these artists down to not only get some real knowledge for myself, but to also show them a place that they would never have really thought to come in any other way. I mean, Andrew had been to West Virginia only once and very east, you know, very western, southern West Virginia, and certainly not the same kind of West Virginia that we're in right now. And, um, and he'd been there in the 60s or something too, 60s, right? I mean, a totally I, I, different world. Late 60s, early 70s, he was there with Cecil. Um, and certainly not a scene that I would think would be very accepting of Cecil's very uh, unique path to music. Sure. But, you know, he was, we brought him in and, and man, it was really, it was really great. And uh, certainly getting to show them a place that they would never have been and but having their one-on-one -on -one attention for hours was, I mean, I, I, after the experience, I played a gig. Um, after the first experience with Andrew, I played a gig with some friends that I'd played with for a long time. And one of them was like, man, you really have changed a lot. What happened? You know, and, and I was like, well, first set of the grant came through and man, they were like, oh, wow. And then Matt came through and a bass player that I've, I respect very highly was like, what did you do? do and i was like oh my god i hope that's a good thing but you know <laughs> he was it was you know having this time to spend with matt and not the confines of what they have going on in new york and what they all of their family obligations and their other work obligations so it was really it was really great and actually it got matt the opportunity to uh broaden his fan base because he came and did a gig in shepherdstown and Will you actually it, tell that story? It's a it's a really uh, fantastic story that I think people ought to hear. Oh, absolutely! So Matt and I went to lunch at um, one of the local restaurants, the Blue Moon Cafe, and it's a really funky little place that you know it's got really good food and and but they have bands and Matt was walking around and they've got old instruments on the wall. They've got a semi-functioning piano in there, and you know, and Matt and his his very uh, unique personality was walking around just man, I love this place. I want to play a gig here. And the uh, person who booked the place happened to be standing right there at that moment and said, yeah, I'll give him a gig. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll book you. No idea who he was. No idea at all. And so she comes up to me uh, at the farmer's market a few months, you know, six, eight weeks later, and she says, so I booked your friend. He's going to be good, right? And I said, I think you're up in for a treat. And uh, 
so but but the day before the gig we're calling everybody frantically please come to this gig please, you know because nobody had really been exposed to matt other than sure you know my talking about him and maybe his appearance at town in town for the grant and he hadn't played at all he um didn't even bring any drumsticks to the for the grant and so we got got there and they went on at like 10 o'clock and man and who was in the band at this the, point? it was it was the quartet with uh jeff letterer and andrew d'angelo and chris lightcap and this was kind of uh andrew's last hurrah with the band um to go off and do his own back to his own thing and um they were phenomenal you know andrew came in lid on his knees playing this really great long tone grabbed a beer from an audience member threw it on his face and spit it back at the audience i mean it was it was showmanship at its peak but musicianship at its peak and it, i think that was such a unique experience for all of us to see what a high level music could be on but still be incredibly engaging and not super stuffy and uptight like some people can envision jazz being, you know. It was just – it was an amazing experience. And for months afterward, people would run into us in town and say, did you see that Matt Wilson guy? Oh, my gosh. Could you believe that? <laughs> and, you know, and that was the thing. It, it really helped a lot of them to kind of get a new fan base and kind of see, you know, people to – get exposed to them and matt's really great about playing everywhere he goes and bringing the music and being a real jazz messenger but it's fun and it's engaging and you know and plus he's got a great afro heavy metal wig and right you know that always goes over well <laughs> that's great my guest is jeff cosgrove he's got a new album called for the love of sarah it's the music of paul motion and uh man it's been it's been such a pleasure i said to you last night this is kind of the first stop on the tour that feels like I'm now out of my comfort zone because before this I was in state college where a lot of my family lives. Before that I was with people that I know well. And so this is the first time, you know, I showed up late at night. Sarah picked me up in front of a seven <laughs> eleven right, somewhere, exactly. you know, Hager's on the highway. Town, yeah. Dropped off by the Greyhound bus bay runner. Exactly. Know. And then I didn't actually stay at your house, I stayed with a friend of yours, so like late at night you drove me out into the woods. In like Down classic the- horror movie <laughs> fashion. <laughs> dropped me off and I you know, a cabin in the woods, which turned out to be phenomenal. But, but, but very sincerely, man, I, I mean, it's been a really great experience being here. And I thank you so much for hosting me and for making this part of the tour oh. as, as great as it's been. It's been really fun. Well, thank you for coming. You know, it's so great to have someone like you who's really kind of meeting musicians who are outside of New York, you know, and you're really kind of providing the next level of oral histories for this music, you know, and I'm really grateful that I could be a part of it. You know, I thank you so much for. A, doing this and B, having me. And, and so, you know, and hopefully you'll get to meet the wigwam guy later on today. Um. Yeah, which we should say to people, that, that'd be a shame not to have that on the show. There's a guy who lives down the hill from the guy I'm staying with who lives in a wigwam who's like an avant-garde composer slash tree surgeon. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, a fair, fair description. <laughs> but he also has constructed a hot tub into this wigwam that he has piped in. It's, it's a pretty amazing, you know... <laughs> He heats the hot tub with, you know, burning wood. It's it's an amazing – Shepherdstown's an amazing, unique place. I think a, a wigwam hot tub is pretty historically accurate though, right? Uh, I mean I think a lot of the native peoples were big into hot tubbing. Who as isn't I understand. big into right. hot tubbing? I mean seriously. I mean really. Like it's kind of one of those throughout time. <laughs> right. How do you make this possible? 
That's fantastic. Well, again, it's Jeff Cosgrove. Go to jeffcrossgrovemusic.com, and uh, the album is called For the Love of Sarah. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jason. That's music from Jeff Cosgrove and the band Motion Sickness. Thanks to Jeff for setting up the Shepherdstown part of my adventure, including a poetry reading there, a recording of which is online at jasoncrane.org. What else do I have to tell you? I guess uh, please support the tour if you can. You can go to thejazzsession.com slash tour and make a one-time donation, become a recurring member, or donate a book to my Kindle, and all of those things are very, very helpful to me. Please do get out there, if you would, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.